Well, being worse at winding probably is usually a detriment. So yeah. Isn't that what the anti-gloss tells you to do? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the anti-gloss tells you to be worse at winding. Nice. <laughs> I don't think there's much winding in the anti-gloss. Just parrying. Good, because you're so bad at winding it. poorly. Yeah. All right. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode 13 of Fencing by the Book, lucky number 13. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Smoridge, and with us today are Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. So we're recording this episode immediately after episode 12. So nobody's been up to anything in the last 15 minutes, apart from making <laughs> coffee and chatting nonsense. So, so we're going to finish off the, the Crooked Hue section in this episode is the plan. Whether or not we get there, who knows. Yeah, Hannah, could you give us the uh, the German of the next few lines? Yes, I can. Okay. Krump nit kurz hau, durchwechsel damit schau. Krump werd ich irret, der Edelkrieg ihn verwirret, dass er nicht weiß, vor war, wo er sei, eine Fahr. Thank you very much. And Steve, could you give us uh, Harry's translation? Crump not, rather cut it short. If the changing through is sought, make the crump to who distress you, to confuse him, bind and press him, to give a man no way to know where there is solace from your blows. Sometimes I like to try to figure out what Harry's accent must sound like based on some of these rhymes. <laughs> All right, there's, there's a song called Smoko by the chats that I'm going to send you after this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Just quickly looking at the language, the, the krumpfwer de eret, the crooked those who would um, annoy you. Yeah, Hannah, you had a, a note on this line in the chat, didn't you? Oh, the, the eret. Oh, no, the verwirret. No, wait. Yeah. I can't remember. You said something like you'd say it about people who are really pissing you off. Yes. Ah, oh, God. But was it in that section? Are you sure? <laughs> no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure of anything. Oh, no. I remember it's, it's Irremachen. Uh, oh, what? In what section was it? Oh, and, and will dich mit Behendigkeit Irremachen. So it is in the Krumm section. So Irremachen is. Hmm. What is it? To, to drive someone crazy, like in a really, really bad way. I like okay. it that it's in there. <laughs> okay, cool. So, does anybody want to start off with describing the, the, the actions here? The first bit's the, the Kurt's file. Sure. So, so the first thing to know, the first thing to know is that there's two different versions. <laughs> Yeah, that was the first thing I was going to say. There's basically two different plays here. One's in Ringek, one's in Lev, and then Dadzik has both of them. So Ringek's version of this action is that they are going to cut, and you threaten to bind their sword of the Krump, so you threaten the Krump to the flat we discussed in the last episode. And instead of doing that, you cut short under their blade and come up on the right side with your hilt in front of your head and thrust uh, behind their sword. Then somebody who cares about Lev, I guess, can do the Lev version. <laughs> That's you, Steve. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so this one is a yeah, counter to the guard of the ox, and 
you basically, well, I guess I'll paraphrase it. You threaten to, I guess, bind their blade, and then when they move to uh, block it, you you uh, do a little disengage under and stab them to the other side. Maybe I'll just read it. This is a counter t against the guard of the ox. Perform it like this. When you go to the man on guard, if he then stands in the guard and holds his sword in his holds his sword in his left side in front of the head, throw your sword to your right shoulder and do as if you would like to bind to his sword with the crooked hue and hew short and disengage with it below and shoot in the point to the other side long to the opening so he must parry. With it you come to strikes and to other work with the sword. So yeah, you're threatening to bind, which they never told us to do against Ox. They never unless told us to bind. Unless they did. But in so which case... That's the alternate interpretation of breaking Ox as the Fear of Fizetsun version could be what's referred to here. Although that's not really conclusive. Yeah, but in that case, they should have said so earlier. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I wish they had. Yeah. But at, at any rate, that's what they're referencing here. They're saying if you try to bind onto a sword with the crooked hue while he's an ox, go below and stab. So I have a question for the for the group, um, which is, what does it mean to hew short? Well, in the, these plays. in the Germain layer, the common fencing, you're told to always hew long, aren't you? No, definitely. Well, yeah, yeah <laughs> extend extend your arms long with the hue. They say, but so what's the opposite of that? I guess is to not extend your arms long, so you're not reaching to your maximum extent. Yeah, they talk about um, fencing short in the shield how section, which mm -hmm. we'll get to. In is that when they disengage under your blade, or? Well, it, it, they explain different ways that you could be fencing that would be described as short. And amongst them are any winding makes you short, and falling upon somebody's sword, possibly crooked, makes you short. Seven, seven, yeah. yeah. So I guess this could be seen as falling upon their sword, crooked. Um, yeah. It also, so other alternatives that I've come up with would be. Short edge, which works fairly well in this setup of your and Hans Madel at one point um, refers to short edge cuts as being short cuts, and so doing a a pal but with the short edge instead of the long will naturally pull the your blade back from where they expect it to fall, and allow you to get underneath, perhaps. And the other one is in the general lesson it tells you that if you don't step with your cut, then your cut is short. So that could be what's being referred to, is you do your regular crimp pow, but instead of you don't step with it, thus creating a different distance than they expect. So in that case, all of the um, crimp to the flats, like we were talking about last episode, when you're not taking a step, that would be short also. Yep. Yeah, I, th I think like the, the surface level um, shortening is just like not reaching as far. And then... I guess those two examples that you chose that or yeah that you explained would be other ways of shortening yeah. possibly 
I think all of these kind of come together into the actual goal of what you're trying to achieve here, which is that they're probably trying to take a parry, especially if you're trying to crimp onto the blade, you have a fair amount of kind of impetus or force in the bind. And the way you can neutralize that as the person receiving it is by taking a parry very close to the weak of their sword, where you engage it with your your strong right near your hilt with your shield against the the weaker tip of their sword. But that also means that a relatively small shortening of the blade, either by extending the arms less or by changing the edge or by not stepping uh, or by just doing something else to re reduce the distance, will let you slip past that quite easily. Yeah. Um, and note that it says disengage with it below and shoot in the point. I guess it doesn't. Say, oh, yeah, it does say long to the other side, long to the opening. So right after you disengage, you stop being short and you shoot the point in long. So you just shorten yourself in order to get under, and then you don't want to be short anymore. Now you want to be long and get to their opening. It's interesting that Ringek doesn't describe his action as being changing through, even though that's supposed to be what the play is about. And the Dante equivalent also does not. Right. So is, does Ringek actually change through here? What do you think about changing through? He says, he says move through. Ringek is pretty messy. Move through with your point under. Drive through. Does he even have a verb? Oh, I guess drive through would be <laughs> how other people drive through. Yeah. Far mit dem Ort und Durchfahren would be the German word used there. Yeah, far mit dem Ort und seine Schwert durch und Wind auf dein Richter Seiten. Yeah, so the word uh, durch, through, as as far as I understand it, usually implies uh, moving under to the other side, rather than like over or physically through a barrier. No, it implies like dropping, dropping the points, um, moving beneath the sword. Right. Yeah. The other thing which is interesting here, I think, about the difference between the two is that Ringek uses a very different continuation action, where Lev talks about shooting long afterwards. Ringek winds up instead, which is another shortened action, according to some of the glosses and some of the implications. So Ringek mm -hmm. seems to stay short. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It could be like a thrust from right ox or something. Yeah, a right ox style thrust. Yeah, well, that, that's how I do it and how I think it manifests itself in um, full-speed sparring. I'm the the first play, the Ringek play. So they're cleaving in above from their right shoulder, and you faint in response? Well, it doesn't strictly say they're actually cleaving. It says they want to cleave. Yeah, yeah, he wishes to. He wants to, yeah. So my my the way I square that circle, because obviously fainting into an actual cut would be a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> uh, don't worry buddy I have terrible ideas all the time <laughs> um, but the the way I would try to the way I tend to square the circle is that they're like you've made them afraid of the strength of your crimp to the blade basically so they want to cut but they know that if they're going to cut you're going to throw a crimp on the blade and displace their blade and be able to do whatever you want like that's the previous section right and so instead of cutting what they're going to be planning to do, or what you think they're going to be planning to do, this is an I think that you think that I think that you think kind of situation, right? Yeah. So what, what you, th you yeah. think that what they're planning is to look like they're going to cut, but actually do a strong parry against your crump. So yeah. you sell them on the fact you're going to crump, come to the other side, 
and go. Sorry, yeah, go on. I was going to say Danzig does have, I think it's Danzig, driving high up with your hands and then yeah. going as if you crump. So, yeah, there's very much a kind that, of. That's a body feint to steal the initiative. Yeah, you're selling them on the fact that what you're about to do is like throw this crump in and smash their sword down. And so they go to parry it and you just don't. Right. Who had the observation about the throwing the sword in the shoulder part? That is only for the ox one, and we'll talk about that. Unless you want to talk oh. about it now. But I have more to say about the uh, against a cut. Go for it, Steve. Okay. What was I going to say? Right. So, oh. again, so the, um, you know, the body faint. I, I, I was going to say, I think most of us, at least I have anyway, uh, fought against somebody who you can be pretty sure they're not going to cut straight towards you, but they're probably going to try to destroy your cuts. Yeah, like, a male fencer. Right. Yeah, there's there's a there's like a, a thing you can see in somebody's body language when their direction of focus changes and they're gonna try and smash your sword instead. Right. So against that, the way I would do the I think maybe I've done this once or twice. It's not usually a go to, and it's really hard to do, for me anyway. But the way I do it is I basically just as I'm stepping in to cut. I just go straight up into right ox and try to get under their sword and stab. I think it's worked maybe very few times. But in a recent uh, Martin Fabian uh, sparring video, um, his his sparring partner does one that I would like 100% consider to be this play. Sweet. Is, is that Vlado or someone else? It's Andre Bojica whose name I've just mangled, and I apologize to him before he hits me next time I see him. <laughs> cool. So right. throwing the sword on the shoulder. Yeah, so, so the second play, on the other hand, is in pre-fencing there, hanging out in a, a hanging point, right? Left side before the head. Uh, ox. Is it actually descri- is it describe it as ox? Oh, yeah, yes. it does. In the intro. Damn. And you go as if you're going to fall on top of it with a crimp power and instead just stab through. Right. So there's that phrase that um, that Michael said before, throw your sword to your right shoulder. So do we have any thoughts on that? Instead the of only place where it appears in the gloss. Yeah. Usually they say, like, place your sword on your right shoulder or just, well, like, approach him with your sh- sword on your right shoulder. Well, I can believe that if you're going to sell that you're going to be doing a big cut down, then pulling up to your shoulder would be a good lead up. Right. So is it like a big wind up? Yeah. Well, Johanna? Joe? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> um, maybe it's to, to, I don't know, to underline the intent of the motion. So, because you're basically fainting, aren't you? you? You're trying to look as aggressive as possible to make your faint convincing. You want to, or maybe your opponent is preparing for a very hard bind. He's probably moving his sword against your attack to parry. And then you drop your point below. So maybe the, 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 the movement of throwing your sword on your, on your shoulder is to, I don't know, to underline that you're going to really, really strongly cut against his ox. Well, in fact, it's just a point. So maybe it's just to <laughs> make yourself seem more aggressive. 
more threatening. Yeah. Where do we think the sword is being thrown from? Trunkard, obviously. I'm, I'm thinking like this, this half long point, half plow position. Van Flugenart, that's a good one. <laughs> I mean, that's where everyone fences from anyway, right? That's the noblest and best guard. <laughs> yeah, I had the Shrankut idea also. You could do an effective shoulder throw, or throwing onto your shoulder <laughs> from there. A shoulder throw? <laughs> I do a shoulder throw from Shrankut. That's not an action you want to do with a sharp too much. I think we, some of us know a guy who injured himself with something like that once. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, maybe this is further evidence of the blunt sword's sport fencing theory. Maybe. Well, you can throw a sword onto your shoulder without throwing the edge into your shoulder. That's what you would like to with your ranks. With my edge alignment, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but Mike, you can throw a sword into your, like, nuts without injuring yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't don't think you should, though. It, It was the cross, so... Oh, well. <laughs> Cross never hurt anybody. Yeah. I saw a guy get five stitches from hitting himself with a cross once. Hmm. Okay, a cross hurt a guy once, but beyond that... <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course there's an exception. I've I've gotten a cross through my sparring gloves twice, but they went between my fingers, so it was okay. No stitches, no hurty. Alright, let's Take move on to... I broke a finger. Flanges with those sparring gloves once. Ouch. Freak accident train. Yeah. Actually, one other thing I want to mention about this stuff, um, going back to the ring act version before we move on, is the idea that you're doing the final thrust with your hilt before your head. You're like winding your hilt before your head, which is actually a kind of parallel to what you see in the Bistek reader in the Zornhelm. Um, this idea of dr- yeah, this idea of driving the hilt up in front of your face as part of your action. Uh, is coming up here again, which is an, an interesting little detail. Yeah. Mm, what about uh, the Go Steve? <laughs> okay. Um. What about the the throwing in of the point? Oh no, shooting in of the point. So when reading the different versions, it kind of I get the impression as if the the shooting in of the point is actually not supposed to hit at all, but to to make him misplace or set aside whatever you want <laughs> oh. um, so that you can hit him with other stuff. So what do we think about that? Could it be like um, factual rules? I don't know. So I, I, I think the, the thrust is not supposed to hit at all. Yeah, well, it it's, <laughs> it's th- that's an interesting difference between yeah. the one against the cut and the one against ox because against the cut, it seems like the stab is supposed to hit. But against Ox, it seems like you're kind of expecting them to figure out what you're doing and parry so you can do other stuff. I'm a, a little bit worried that Fresh School Rules is becoming like our, our version of archaeology's ritual or symbolic <laughs> value. <laughs> Just whenever we don't understand it, we start saying, oh yeah, Fresh School Rules. Well, oh, if somebody yeah, used you dishonorably and you want to take revenge on <laughs> Yeah. So, so the... you win the prize. <laughs> yeah. The thing which I think definitely is true there is that the like the follow and thrust isn't necessarily the same. If you've come under uh, an ox trying to thrust with your with your hilt above your head in the right side is a really weird place to thrust, they end up being pretty much on top of your weak straight away. Whereas coming through and just shooting out long. Um, lets you outreach the ox and force them to come with a parry instead of trying to counter thrust. 
um, is quite nice. Whereas if they're in a kind of tighter sort of parrying from a cut position, going straight to the target, you're probably a little bit closer for a start. And then going straight for the target is safer because they aren't already extended or their point isn't already in presence as well. I think yeah. this is something that we need to drill and play with. Yeah, the one against the cut, like at least the way I do it, you kind of end up in a pretty strong position and they usually end up on your strong, which is not necessarily true with the ox one. Oh, has anybody ever done the ox one? In I have, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, like once or twice. Yeah. I, th I think it works really well. Yeah, me too. I think it's way better than um, throwing the point onto the hands. Yeah, that's for sure. sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, I find that you can set it up by threatening to throw the point against the hands. I realize yeah. that the description here is that you threaten to bind, but if you try to throw the point against their hands, one of the very natural counters to that is to pull your hands back a little bit to try and take it at the parry on your strong instead. And so if you cut a little bit short, you'll come underneath and you can go to the other side. And that's the way I set this up and I use it against Ox. Yeah, same. And it's, it's quite good because if they're expecting a bind, then they'll twer how round to the other side. Right? Yeah. 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 Right. And you're already in right ox, which would make that difficult on that line. Yeah. You got you to gotta angle it right to block that twer how. But yeah. Yeah, if or you're you angling the point down, then you're you'll probably your block it. Or you can just shoot your point in while they're busy doing the twerhound and get it between their arms, and then the twer won't happen. That's true. <laughs> or you can just shoot in and let yourself get hit by the twer because a stab to the chest <laughs> is worth more points than a hit to the hands. Well, oh, that's a good this point. Is some galaxy brain well, fencing. So not yeah. textual rules, though. So very Nordic. Oh, that's true. Textual rules only hit to the head count. Remember? Right. Yeah. Well, factual rules. Both of those hits would be dishonorable. So you just. <laughs> Take your revenge, okay? Right. <laughs> All right, come on. Let's get on to the next section, which is actual noble fencing, right? Yeah. yeah. And this is a section which, as we've noted previously, is good in Ring Egg and bad in the others. Ring yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. Which one should we do first? Let's start with the bad left version, or Danzig, I don't mind. Okay. So basically. I don't really have an interpretation of this. So basically, what to paraphrase, he basically is saying if you do a crump, you he says you're open yourself on the left side. So it doesn't say your left side or his left side. Then if he's clever and he wants to hew to it, then don't let him leave your sword and then basically like be better at winding or remain in the in the winding and be better at winding than him and stab him with the war. Just be a bit offensive. Brilliant advice. Now, T, yeah. what's your supposedly good ring ek version? Yeah, so the ring ek version basically turns this all around. Um, the thing which is kind of weird about the Dancing Lev version is that it's talking about this as being a thing you do after you crump, um, whereas the ring ek version says that this is a thing you do when they try to crump against you. So it describes the setup as being that they're going to try and crump onto your uh, crimp onto your cut. So they are, they're trying to crimp your flat. Uh, and you essentially hold strongly against their sword and thrust under their crump. Um, the way I tend to interpret this is by turning your blade so that your short edge catches their cut. Um, as long as you do it relatively close to the strong of their sword, their sword isn't moving that fast. If you take it relatively close to the strong of your sword, you can actually hold against it and just 
shoot an extended thrust right underneath. Uh, this also works great if you're in uh, long point and they try to crimp your long point, by the way. Um, yeah. And then if you haven't, yeah, you just turn your edge against their cut and stab them. And if they haven't, uh, if you haven't hit directly with the stab and they start to work, say they, they're like, okay, I have your blade and I'm going to cut your head or something, but you simply wind, follow with your strong against whatever, wherever their weak is going and keep your point in presence. Um, so it's a classic kind of threaten with the point and then wind as you need to uh, sort of play. That kind of makes sense. And I think the, the final sentence in pretty much... Um, I know, is it only in Ringek that it explains what the Noble War is? Only yeah. Ringek says Noble War in the gloss. The other mm-hmm. ones say war. Well, Ringek's explanation, I think, is a little bit important, which is, this called the Noble War, da-da-da. Do it so that you can found him, and he doesn't know where he uh, he shall where remain he should before you. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you have this like, you know, when you shoot in the point under his sword to his chest, as is shown before. If he then pushes your sword down out of the way, then wind. And if he displaces, bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. So it's very much a kind of winding your point from opening to opening as he tries to parry or displace it. Idea. Well, once you get to that part, the Rayak and the Dante Glove are both the same. Wind better. Than the other person. <laughs> yeah, but at least the Ringek one has them reacting. You're not trying to outwind them, you're just moving from opening to opening while they try and defend. Yeah. Well, it calls back. I mean, you you could see the Danzig level one as a callback to the war that we already went over. So, like the Krieg play where you're winding from one opening to the other and making them react. So, if. You look at it as a callback, then you could twist the words into saying that they're telling you to do that. Yeah, and I think it's probably a deliberate callback to a certain extent, even in the Ringek version. So there's something interesting in the Ringek, which is a that we, we see this is the problem with the fragments that we have of Ringek. It's actually not clear which play of Ringek is meant to be countered here, um, because in the in Rostock, it appears to be against a against a counter to the Kortsau, the Krip, the Kripnot Q short player, which is after you thrust, he presses your sword down with his crooked hue, and then you do your wind better against him. Whereas in Dresden, it sets it up as a separate play against somebody who beats your flat. Um, yeah. So both versions exist. And the text is largely the same, but in Rostock, the it's a different setup. I think the Rostock version is a miscopying, um, is my gut feeling on this, um, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, if this is a callback to the Kurtzhau, you've already, in the Kurtzhau, wound up to your right side with your arms. Mm-hmm. So it's telling you to do the thing that you've already done immediately before it, which doesn't really make much sense. And meanwhile, the thing which is saying that you've done before, you know, when you shoot in the point under his sword to the chest, there isn't actually a description, a description to shoot in the point, like mm-hmm. shoot in, uh, in the Kurtzhau section, whereas there is in the play that precedes this section in the Dresden version. So I think the copyist in Rostock has lost that paragraph. And I would, I would believe that's true if it weren't for the fact that the Dresden gloss doesn't really line up the two paragraphs very well at all. In that the second paragraph repeats basically the entire first paragraph. 
Yeah, so I think the Dresden glossator, the Dresden scribe we know is bad, so they've probably miscopied it as well. But this is a problem I ran into when I was trying to do a compilation of these, is what's the right place for this? Yeah. And it's not entirely clear. Yeah, the way I would probably do this if I was writing, if I was editing a version of it, is I would take the first paragraph from the Dresden about shooting in the point long under his sword, and then I would follow it with the paragraph from the Rostock about once you shoot in the point under his sword as written before, if he then does this, then blah, blah, blah. And that reading is the one that makes the most sense. It just requires us to sort of staple together a couple different things that aren't necessarily connected. Yeah, well, you end up assuming that basically the Dresden glossator uh, repeated a section incorrectly. And the yeah, Rostock glossator, whereas the um, the Rostock glossator lost a section incorrectly, which you know both of those are plausible mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, they're both quite common copyist errors in manuscripts, so maybe. So, as far as I just want to mention, since, since Rank is uh, countering somebody who's doing a crump to you, I think it's. It's interesting to note that the Dresden gloss also mentions somebody uh, doing a crump how against you. So it says if somebody knows something of the title and parries your technique crooked, and then so on and so on. Mm -hmm. But his, his counters are against the follow-ups to the crump, so the wind or the strike. And he basically says wind better than the other person. As far as I can tell, anyway, it's pretty vague. But just an interesting note. From a tactical perspective, you have this kind of situation where if you've done an extended and they've done a crump, currently you're long and they're short, which is actually quite a nice situation for you to shorten and wind against their attack. They'll extend their repost probably. Yeah. And that's kind of the nicest situation to try and counterwind against somebody. I think we can see sort of an underlying lesson here that's more than just wind better which might be that while the Krumpau has a lot of really good applications, and but it's still sort of a trick that relies on breaking the rules um, to your advantage. And somebody who's really good at following the rules can typically beat you if you get into these sort of bind situations, right? Because ultimately the counter to the Krumpau is do the stuff we talked about in the previous section and do it well, and it will work for you against the Krumpau. And to to go further um, with that is if if they are clever and they are following the rules, now you have to play by the rules in order to beat them. So you got to go back to your windings and back to the war in order to, uh, I guess, pick up the pieces of this exchange. Yeah, a wonky cross arm cut is not going to be your entire Swiss Army knife. I mean, right? speak for yourself. What? <laughs> Speak for yourself. I've literally won matches like just with Crump Out. I'm telling you what the book yeah. says, man. <laughs> but, but T, anything can be made to work, and it also depends highly on your opponent. It does. It's true. Um, well, they were just bad at binding, and that was their problem. Yeah, I want matches. I want a match with a Geislin once. That means it's the ultimate attack. Well, it is. It um, is. It is actually. Yeah. <laughs> Why are we even talking about all this other stuff? But that's not in that's not an RDL. We'll have to do that in the Talhaver podcast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, from a kind of one of the things you, I actually want to bring up on this uh, this material, which I hadn't thought of in advance, is this idea of extension and retraction. Somebody, uh, Daniel Pope, I think from Australia, wrote a really nice article about um, kind of extension and collection, which are the phrases that you'd use in writing for this. 
um, and the way you can transition between them. Um, and I think it's a pattern you actually see a reasonable bit in the in the Zettel a fair bit. So that's something you can potentially see here, in the, especially in the Ring Egg play, where you, if they're kind of trying to crimp on your blade, the first thing you do is you shoot out long, so you extend. And then if they work against that, you can shorten and wind. And technically speaking, like if we're both extended, it's very difficult to do windings. You end up being strong on strong in some complicated ways. Whereas if, uh, especially if I've extended, I try to stay extended while I wind and stuff. Um, but by being that little bit further away, far enough away to try and shoot a long thrust in, there's then just enough space and time to do a winding as a defense against their potential riposte. And you end up in a place where you have control of the bind again and can step in to deliver the point or something. So it's actually quite an elegant way to set up windings. Um, it's something I use a fair bit when I'm teaching people winding actions in one-to-one -one lessons, um, is this kind of extending out and then winding as they take your blade and riposte. Uh, because you get just enough time to do it. Cool. Anybody have anything else to add? Yeah, I think we should maybe talk a little bit more about the Danziglev version. So, basically, you're, you've are you crumped the person. So, whereas with Ringek, it's uh, counters um, against somebody who crumps you. Yeah. This one, it's countering somebody who seems to have been countering your crump. Doing your best. Yeah. So meanwhile, so first of all, meanwhile, when you hew, hew in crooked, uh, the crooked hue from your right side or bind to a sword. Meanwhile, you are open with the left side. So, to me, at first glance, that seems like it shouldn't be true because they talked about like the shrankhut. If you're yeah, cutting you're from the right side, your left side, right? Yeah. Before you cut, you should be open on your left side. And then after you cut, now you're, especially if you're cutting all the way down to Shrankhut, now you should be open on your upper right. So I guess one explanation is they say um, open with the left side. But it seems very strange to me that they would be speaking from your opponent's perspective at that yeah. point. Maybe it means once you've bound, then you're open on the left? Yes. It's clearly uh, talking about the snapping continuation, right? Like you crimp over their blade, so they snapping up to your left side. That, that's the best thing that that I've been able to come up with. The only problem with that is, it says remain with your sword at his, and that's very difficult to do when your opponent is snapping against you. So how do you maintain a bind while somebody is snapping, if at all? Or does that just mean? Re-establish the bind as soon as possible. Any ideas? No, no ideas from me. Okay. I've got to say, this is struggling to to picture this play. <laughs> well, I guess I'll just. So okay, so my interpretation of this is you crump somebody, and they immediately do a schnappen either to your upper right or your upper left. It doesn't really matter, and then you kind of stay with your arms crossed and follow after their schnappen and rebind and then wind in from there whatever mm -hmm. winding you can do you after you uh, parry with your arms still crossed your point should be lined up for a stab so you can do that or just like work whatever you need yeah, that, I, I would agree that's what I it conjures up in my mind but I'm not sure how easy that is to do in fencing is it's, why I hesitate yeah, it's it's doable. I actually um today when I was when I was affecting 
um, one of my fencing partners, Austin Straub, um, actually gives really good feedback for this for 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 this move because he'll often, as soon as I uh, hue crooked onto his blade, whether he's riding rising or whatever, he'll do a schnappen uh, to my upper right opening. So I was trying that out a couple times, and you know, sometimes it works. Sometimes, like sometimes I get the hit off of it. Sometimes I don't. But even when I don't, I feel like I'm in a decent situation and can escape. So I'd say as far as fencing utility, it's pretty good. And I also think that uh, schnapping is a very is like a pretty intuitive response to being crumped because you're getting very hard feedback and when you get hard feedback you want to usually cut around to the other side so just some food for thought i guess i know good i'll need to digest that yeah maybe by next week does anybody have anything else to add uh, I do. There's one thing I forgot to raise in the previous verse that we talked about, which is the PQ27A version of the Krubnik Kurzau play is different in that he doesn't view it as a play at all. Um, so he has a different interpretation of the dadle here and thinks it's advice about what you should not be doing, which is shortening your arms at the Krumpau. Um, his quote is, by no means should you hew too shortly, but if you do, then you not forget the changing through. So the play becomes your sort of backup. If your crimp doesn't land the way you expect it to, then immediately you should go to changing through, um, as opposed to doing it as a feint. He sees it as a recovery. That's that's a way that you can read that line in the zettle also. So you can do yeah. like, you can read it like, crump nicht kotau, or you can read it Crump, nicht quetzal. Johanna? Oh, it's a bit like T said earlier. So you, you could aim for the hands, but if you retract them, you could just drop the point and um, do the other play. So it, it works. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because it's, it's one of the more, more obvious places where the glossators, in this case, RDL versus 3227A, are reading the Zedl and not actually understanding the same lesson from it. Um, yeah. And I love it every time that happens because I think that they're both good lessons, and they're both applicable to fencing. Um, if your crimp fails, you should know that you immediately go to long point and, and try to shoot the point in or whatever. Right. But it's not obvious from RDL. That's what you should. That's how it works. Yeah, the the English dual reading of that of that subtle, by the way, would be like um, either don't hew crooked, hew short, or Crooked, don't hew short. So crooked, don't hew short would be like... As we what, say, as a command, as opposed to... Or as an instruction, as opposed to part of the sentence. Right, yeah. So I guess that would... Crooked hew and do not hew short. Right, yeah. Interesting. Cool. You often have to add extra words to make it make sense in English. Sadly. Yeah. That's the pitfall of the settle. I wonder if that was intended. Cryptic by, word. Yeah. I've heard by, that somewhere before. At least he maybe he meant both of those. Uh, Johanna, how 
How ambiguous is it actually in German? Is one um, of those meanings more obvious than the other? I'd say same as in English. So um, some people say it's um, krump, nicht kurzhau, and some people say it's krump, nicht kurzhau. So, yeah, just as you said. So it's very ambiguous. <laughs> huh. Nice. I'm going to put my money on least intending both of them then. Right. I, I generally believe in these cases that it's purposely supposed to be able to be used to teach two different lessons. Well, it's obviously much more efficient to memorize something when it has two meanings. Yep. Right. I mean, and this is something that that has that I know Christian Trostler is writing an article about. But if you look at some other copies of the Zettel where the spellings change, um, even though the meter and sort of the phonetics of it is the same, they're actually now using different words um, in the same rhymes to give you a different lesson. And you could say this is someone who doesn't understand the Zettel or a master who is purposely misquoting it because he has a different lesson he wants to, wants to teach, and he's using the text that his students know, um, which is interesting. Like in, in Talhofer, uh, the Koenigsegg, well, not the Koenigsegg, the, the Copenhagen Talhofer, you see an entire title where most of the verses have been altered in some way, but not so much that they're not recognizable. They just sort of have different lessons to them. And I, I suspect that that was a common way of teaching, um, was to say, all right, so you know this verse, um, and you and this is what we've heard before. Here's another thing that it means. Is that Talhofer Zettel, the first one? No, this is the one that's from 1459. So it's okay, cool. the old yeah, one yeah. is a pretty faithful theory. recording of it. Ah, interesting. So yeah, Talhofer knew the the standard Zettel. He just chose not to put it in this manuscript. Cool. For whatever reason. All right. Um, should we wrap up here? Yeah. Cool. All right. And next week we're going to be looking at the the thwart here. Just the dwarf here. Uh, no. Lateral here. The crosswise oh, cut. Dwarf <laughs> you. We can right, tell uh, that next week is going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Transverse. It and then we're going to spend like. This work how right? Yeah, then we're gonna spend like two months talking about the fair how because it's so long. God, <laughs> I hate the cool. fair. All right, well, thank you. Fair is half offensive, Mike. How would you hate it? Yeah, thanks, Meyer. <laughs> For some people, it's all offensive. <laughs> Dutch windmills. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. This has been uh, episode 13 of Fencing by the Book. I'm your host, Mike Smorridge, and our panel have been Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chittister, Stephen Cheney, and T.Q. Thank you for listening.